The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to my program, Afternoons with Mike, here on the Shepherd Radio Network. On the line with me today is the co-founder of Every Black Life Matters. Now, we've had Kevin McGarry on a couple of times. Neil Maman is with us today. He's also president of the Values Advocacy Council. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about your background. I know you grew up under Sharia law. Yeah. So um, my father uh, was a professor in physics, and we grew up in Africa and the Middle East. So I was actually born in Ghana, and I grew up in Jamaica, Ethiopia, Yemen, and Sudan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then I, um, when I was in Yemen, when my dad was in Yemen teaching as a professor there, Yemen, as you know, is a country under Sharia law. So it has uh, a Muslim dictatorship and run by the imam. Somewhere along the line, my dad had a co-worker who borrowed a Bible from him uh, that was sitting on his desk. And that coworker subsequently committed suicide. And when the police went into his house, they found the Bible on the side of his nightstand with my father's name in it. Oh, my. Now, my dad was a very influential man in the area. He knew a lot of people there, and a lot of his students had gone on and started working in the government. So uh, that evening, he got a visit from some of the high-ranking officials in the, in the country, and they uh, said, look, uh, this has happened. They found your Bible. The police have uh, spread the word of it. Um, so we recommend that you leave town in about two weeks. They said, we can we can get you, we can buy you two weeks to leave town. After that, the imams are going to call for your head. Mm. So, um, so we basically, within a week, we left uh, the country. And then my dad followed a week later after basically giving away all our belongings and um, and flying out at the last minute. So, where did you go there. to when you left there? So he uh, he actually he got a call immediately to go to Sudan, back to Sudan. He'd been there before to go back to Sudan, um, and so he was able to fly back there. I actually came to the U.S. because I had a, it was actually in in the book that I wrote a book called Jesus is involved in politics. Why mm-hmm. aren't you? Why isn't your church? And in the book I mentioned that was when I first was trying to come to the U.S. I basically, that had, I mean, I'd been looking forward to coming to the U.S. for years, and it kind of canceled all my plans uh, to come to the U.S. But about three months later, I was, um, my dad um, basically said, look, I can afford one year's worth of college for you in the U.S., so you should go, and we'll see what the Lord provides after that. And the rest is history, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're happy to have you here in America. And you, it's not like you've just been sitting around doing nothing. You're involved. Uh, tell us how this uh, organization, the Values Advocacy Council, how did that come about? Well, we started it um, about in 2003, and I actually was not one of the founders. I just happened to be invited. It was started in 2003, and then they invited me to come on as a board, one of the board of directors because they knew I was uh, very politically motivated, uh-huh. and I had a. Um, so a little, before I jump into that, let me give you a bit more background. So I grew up in a Marxist family. 
my dad, before he became a Christian, was an atheist and a communist. Wow. Uh, three of my uncles were very well-known, famous Marxists in India. In fact, one of them had a price on his head because, uh, you know, communists and Marxists uh, have different flavors of Marxism. And if, if you are the wrong kind of flavor, then the other side tries to kill you. And so Nehru, who was sort of a communist, socialist communist, didn't like the Marxism of my cousins. Oh, sorry, my uncles. And so there was a price on my uncle's head. Uh, you know, he basically uh, was wanted dead, preferably. Uh, so he had escaped and for many years was hiding in the hills. Um, and so we kind of grew up in that environment that when I would go home uh, in the summers to India, um, the argument at the table was never whether communism was good, but which flavor of communism was best. Mm -hmm. And whether you should join the Communist Party of India or the Communist Party Marxist of India. And it was this big, huge yelling match at all the dinner tables of why one was better and how, you know, how one would bring more justice to the people and all that. So I grew up in that environment. Uh, and so I was very socialistic <laughs> at a young age. Yeah. But, What's it like? Uh, you, I came to the you saw all of that. You were a part of that in, in the sense that your dad was involved. And now you're yeah, looking at yeah. what's going on in the country around you right now. That's got to be very weird for you. Well, not only weird, but it's all like, it's all a, an I told you so kind of thing for me. Because when I finally uh, became, uh, when I came to the States and I slowly lost my socialism, um, and uh, started realizing and starting studying and understanding the American principles of government and starting to admire it and realize, wow, this is something that I had never realized was possible or doable and understanding the, the principles of the republic. Um, I started being very active and warning people of all the things that were going on. In fact, I, even though I wasn't, a, I, it took me 12 years to become a U.S. citizen. But even before I was a U.S. citizen, I was already telling people how to vote. So I was mm. actually sending out a little mailing, you know, back then before the Internet. I was a little photocopy, you know, um, and hand out. People would make copies and hand out to other people my voting recommendations, my voting guide and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so all this. So when I when I when this Values Advocacy Council was formed in 2003, uh, and they heard of me, it was natural for me to be on the board. So I was on the board for, for a few years. And then in 2009, I wrote the book, Jesus is Involved in Politics, and started traveling around the country talking about it. 2015, just before the 2016 elections, I, the um, current president retired and the board said, look, you're the natural, you should take over. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to take over. I'm not a politician. <laughs> but then they convinced me that I should do it. So we started then and we started expanding it. Uh, and originally it was only about, you know, it was mainly meant for pastors. It was formed to bring pastors into City Hall, to get them involved with the mayoral races in the City mm -hmm. Hall and all that stuff. But pastors kind of got scared and left and they would just not be involved. And so we had an older group of people, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80 people, and they were meeting on a Tuesday. And I knew that we had to move it to something where we could get the younger families in. And so um, we were trying to do that. And we did a few events where we had about 600 people show up for our evening events. Um, but then COVID hit in 2020, obviously. Yes. And all the churches shut down. And my wife immediately said, we're not going to a church that's shut down. We're going to go to a church that's open. And I said, good point. And uh, Pastor Mike McClure of Calvary Chapel in San Jose had just announced he was not going to stay shut down. So we all went there. We started going there. And uh, 
we, as I say, we went, we go to the finest church in the world. It's the finest church because it has $4 million in fines Mm. from the county. Mm. $4 million in fines because Pastor Mike refused to shut down. So they were fining us $5,000 per meeting. And of course, we're meeting for Bible studies, for prayer groups. I mean, we were meeting there. The, the church is used all the time, and so they were. So we're at four four million dollars, and of course we're not going to pay a dime. In fact, we are suing the county now. The county has been reprimanded by many judges. Uh, they've lost many cases, but they keep moving up. Eventually, get to the Supreme Court, and they'll pay all our money back and all the all the lawyers' fees and everything. So yeah. Anyway, meanwhile, the church has grown from two hundred and fifty people to almost three thousand people. Wow. So when we joined, it was 250 people because we were standing there. It was 2,000. It grew to 3,000. Now, um, one of the things that when I got there, the pastor had said, look, Neil, you remember your VAC stuff, which we had to shut down because we were meeting once a month. He said, uh, can you start, why don't you start meeting here? You know, because the church we were meeting at had shut down. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we started meeting. And I said, how often? I said, should we meet once a month, once a quarter? He said, no, no, I want you to meet every week until the election. And so we, the first meeting, we had 115 people. Second meeting, we had 250 people. Third meeting, we had 350 people. And then uh, Charlie Kirk came. We had 500 people. Then Simone Gold came. We had 1,700 people at that event. Mm. And then Mike Pompeo came. We had about 1,700 people. Dr. Judy Mikovits came. So we, depending on the speaker, we have anywhere from 300 to 1,700 people at one of our events. That's amazing. So this thing is packed. I mean, it's an exciting time. We have Dr. Robert Malone coming on August 13th. This is in San Jose. So if you're in San Jose, I don't know how many people listen to your uh, on, on, online, but if they're in San Jose, come. If you're not in San Jose and you want to watch Dr. Malone, go to VAC.org, and you can register to watch the live stream of Dr. Mo- Robert Malone. He's the inventor of the mRNA. Mm. So he's the inventor of the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. He's, a, he's one of the biggest uh, crusaders against the COVID vaccine. And, so the, and it's he, so ironic, isn't it, that one of the guys who invented the very component of this vaccine is uh, saying, yeah, I don't think this is very safe for you to take. It's experimental exactly. and it's being pushed out there uh, on everyone. and Including uh, kids. Including children now when they don't need it. And it, it's mind-boggling to me. Absolutely. I don't think there's been a day, honestly, since uh, the, the current administration went into office. I don't think there's been a single day where we haven't had a head-scratching moment. Like, what? How can that be? This well, is you know, crazy. You know what I say? I, I say if, it, if it's so obviously stupid that nobody in their right mind would do it, that means it was planned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right? This I is, mean, if, if somebody yeah. does something really, really stupid, like um, then you go, well, obviously it was planned because nobody is that stupid. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they're evil, but they're not stupid, right? Oh, that's so, so true. Now, why do you right? say, I'd love your answer on this. You, One of the points you make in your book is that Jesus is involved in politics. Why aren't you? Why isn't your church? Tell us about that. Yeah, so when the book started originally, I was, um, I was actually giving a talk to a bunch of people uh, youth people. I was talking about politics and why we should be involved in politics. And this young girl raised her hand up and she said, but Jesus wasn't involved in politics. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God. So we should leave politics to the state and, and the church to stay away from it. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do you think Jesus wasn't involved in politics? And she said, well, because he never did anything with the politics of Rome. He never got involved in Roman politics. I said, 
But wait, Jesus was not a Roman citizen, right? And all of a sudden, I realized I have to write a book on this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we asked people, well, okay, so Jesus wasn't involved with Rome because he wasn't a Roman citizen, but he was a citizen of Judea. Now, the Judea was governed by the Romans. Now, understand what governing is. We governed Iraq. Did we mm-hmm. run all their local elections? Were we the local judges and politicians and senators and representatives or police force? No. In fact, we weren't even the local army. We were just governing them. In the same way when Rome was governing Judea, they weren't the army. They, were, they had their soldiers there, but they weren't the local politicians. So did the Judeans have their own local politicians? And the answer is yes, they did. And these were the people that were called the Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. right? And it was, a, it was a group of judges and legislators, and there were 72 of them, and they would sit in a semicircle, and they would make the law, and then they would judge in that same way. And so the question is, did Jesus ever get involved? So these are Jesus' senators and representatives. So did Jesus ever get involved with these people? Did he ever talk to them about the law? Did he ever yell at them? Did he <laughs> ever disagree with them? Or did he just say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them? Well, the question is answered quite hope, hopefully in your own mind. And I hope you're all 30 seconds. Everybody. Yeah, because these people that were in the Sanhedrin were called what? the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, yeah. And now you see that Jesus was involved regularly with his politicians on a daily basis. In fact, he was always working with them nicely and calling, and he was always sweet to them, and he was always very kind to them. No, he wasn't. He was yelling at them. He was calling them whitewashed, dirty, rotten, stinking tombs, a pit of vipers who will save you from hell. (laughs) He was engaged with them on a daily basis antagonist in fact he was he was antagonistic to them in many cases and he was only good and but in fact you can't even preach the gospel without repeating what jesus said to one of his senators senator nicodemus mm-hmm. for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life that was said to a senator to a politician and he's talking to them on a regular basis and then if you go and look at the passage on render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and wonder render unto God what is God's, if you take that word render unto Caesar to mean involvement in politics, right? Mm-hmm. And people say, well, that means we shouldn't be involved in politics. Okay, so let's, refer- let's reread that phrase. But instead of render unto Caesar, we say involvement into politics. Instead of uh, unto Caesar, we say involvement in politics. So now that phrase, that sentence becomes render unto involvement with politics. What is due involvement in politics and render unto God what is due God? Mm-hmm. At no point in that sentence does it say, do not render unto politics, does it? That's right. It just says, yeah. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And, you know, when you look at our country, in the early uh, part of our country, when it was founded, pastors were very involved. Absolutely. So this is what I tell people to say if your pastor says we should not be involved in politics, I have a, a line, and anybody should memorize this. Go to our website. Our, our uh, website is vac.org. We, we talk about it in there, uh, in the why you need to have, have a VAC at your church, and I'll, uh, I'll address that shortly. But um, So if your pastor says, I don't want to get involved in politics, you should say, well, pastor, that means you believe in child prostitution. Mm. He goes, no, wow. I don't. Yeah. Yes, you do, pastor. You not only believe in child prostitution, you believe in burning widows on their husband's funeral pyre. 
No, I don't. Yes, you do. You also believe in gladiatorial combat. You believe in slavery. You believe in racism. You believe in child abuse. You believe in child labor. You believe in elder abandonment. No, I don't. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Because every one of those laws that I just mentioned, every one of those practices were banned because a Christian and most often a pastor got involved in politics and stopped those evil practices. How heartless can you be now to say that Christians should not be involved in politics? Mm -hmm. How heartless can you be to say now pastors should not be involved in politics? Do you want child prostitution, pastor? No, then you need to be involved in politics. There, this is a clarion call for Americans right now. If we, if we like our country, if we believe that God had blessed this America, uh, it's going to take involvement. It's going to take people not uh, you know not just giving in, capitulating, if you will, to uh, all of this leadership that's going on right now. It's going to take voices like yours. The, the name of the book, Neil, is Jesus is involved in politics. Why aren't you? And why isn't your church? How can people get a hold of that? Well, they can go to Amazon or they can go to our website, which is JesusIsInvolvedInPolitics.com. They can order, if you want in bulk, go to our website. If you just want one or two real quick, go to Amazon. And uh, I would say um, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to buy this from my pastor. I'd say, don't do that. He's not going to read it. Mm. <laughs> You're just going to waste your money. I love you buying the book for your pastor, but he's not going to read it. Here's what you do. You buy the book. You read it and you highlight it or read parts of it, highlight it, and then you invite your pastor to lunch and you highlight the passage. You show, you say, Pastor, I'm reading this book. It says that pastors need to be involved in politics. Otherwise, you're heartless. And here's the past, all the roles it talks about. What do you think, Pastor? Mm. Sounds like <laughs> a plan. That's the only way you'll get them to engage. <laughs> well, listen, we're out of time, Neil. Neil Maman, my guest today. That's VAC.org, I believe you said is the website yep. for that. Yeah. And uh, check Neil's stuff out there, VAC.org. And the name of the book, again, is Jesus is Involved in Politics. We have to have you back on, my friend. Thank you for being I'd here. Love <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. Neil Maman, we'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. This is Afternoons with Mike. If you need help with your bookkeeping but can't afford to hire a full-time employee, The Good Books Company is your answer. The Good Books Company is a total bookkeeping solution, working with most industries and offering a free, no-obligation discovery session. The Good Books Company can help you clean up and catch up on all your bookkeeping needs. Visit them at goodbooks.com. That's goodbooks.com. Or call 321-356-0774. That's 321-356-0774. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study, an evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Are you looking for the right franchise to open your own business? Green Flag Franchise has the experience and knowledge to help match your business plan with your goals and values. Is your business ready to become a franchise? Green Flag Franchise will help you explore the potential and benefits of franchising your existing company. For a free consultation and coaching, visit GreenFlagFranchise.com. That's GreenFlagFranchise.com. Back on the line right now with Anne McElhenney. She is actually talking to me from Ireland. Welcome to my program, Anne. 
Oh, it's lovely to be here, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a real treat. Uh, you and your husband put together one of the uh, real shocking films. It was a a documentary a podcast series on abortionist Kermit Gosnell, and it mm-hmm. it, uh, it it really took uh, the the conservative world by storm. I know, and you got a lot of attention about that. Tell me, how, what was what was that like putting all of that together? No, it was great. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, we're journalists and we like to tell, you know, tell, tell people the news, tell people what's going on. This was an extraordinary story that happened in America and not in a backwater, not in another century. This happened, you know, in this century, you had this doctor operating an abortion clinic in Philadelphia where he regularly uh, delivered babies alive and then cut their necks with scissors. And he did this for decades. And he did it in plain sight. And there's so much about this story that's important for people to know. It's important that, you know, we find out that in a place as progressive as Pennsylvania, they just let it happen without doing anything. They, you know, he, as I said, he did it in plain sight. For 17 years, he was never um, inspected by the Department of Health. Two women died. Two women died. One, an African-American mother. Her name was Samika Shaw. And another was a Bhutanese refugee. Her name was Karnamaya Monger. They died in this hellhole, in this house of horror. And the authorities didn't bother to investigate their deaths. Mm. They didn't bother to cross the threshold. And, and if they had, they would have been met with a wall, of a, a smell that was incomprehensible. And they would have seen cats roaming around procedure rooms. They would have seen all kinds of things. That were that he would they would have realized that the staff were untrained that Gosnell himself was not an OBGYN there was so much I mean you know the list goes on and on and on and so what we know you know and we're living and we're talking to each other now in a post row world and people are saying you know well, what happens now well I think what really happens now that's important is every state is going to make a decision about what they want to do and the more information the more education people have the better. And I think it's important that, you know, that people realize what exactly it is that they are voting for when they vote for abortion. And I know that Kermit Gosnell obviously is in prison for murder, but he, he did legal abortions. He did lots and lots of legal abortions. And during his trial, the thing that made me the most important part of this whole story that made me decide to do this, and this is years I'm into this now, mm-hmm. the thing that made me decide to do this was that they had Abortion doctors, legal abortion doctors come to the trial and be asked, can you tell us what a good abortion is? What does a good abortion look like? So that the jury would know the difference between a good abortion and murder. And the jury were shocked Mm. at what was legal, what was legal. And I think people will be shocked when they know what's legal in America and what the laws are in America. Because the laws in America, the way they are right now, are similar to Places like China, places like Pakistan, um, North Korea, like that's quite the club to be in. Mm. That's the club America's in, where you can have an abortion legally up to nine months. Is that a club that we think we should be in, right? But then you have these stories, Anne, that are happening even this morning. I'm up reading account of an attack that happened in New York City yesterday with a sitting congressman who is basically assaulted on a stage. Some guy climbs up and has a, uh, what could have been a fatal weapon and attacks him. 
And he's arrested. Now, right after he's arrested, uh, this congressman made the statement, just watch, they'll let him go. And you know what? They did exactly that. It's a mind-boggling thing to a lot of us here in America. I know you're across the pond right now. But here in America, we're just like scratching our heads thinking like, what happened to the rule of law? No, people are scratching their heads about a lot of things. I mean, you know, I know a lot of your audience are, are religious people. Those admonitions in the Bible about when, you know, when somebody tells you what right is wrong and wrong is right. Yeah. You know, when somebody's telling you that a girl is a boy, you know, like does every day you, you, know, you talk about head scratchers. But on this abortion issue, and I would ask your audience, I would ask them to do me a massive favor. I would ask them to go to SerialKillerPod.com, SerialKillerPod.com. Listen to one episode of the podcast, and you'll hear the voice of the detectives. You'll hear the voice of Jim Wood, who would just do anybody's heart good, who is the detective most responsible for putting Gosnell behind bars. You'll hear Gosnell, who I interviewed in prison, tell the story of, you know, I mean, you'll hear him in his own word, trying to justify what he did. Um, and it's very, very powerful. And in the end, it's very life affirming, because in the end, justice won out. In the end, justice won out. But I think one of the things that's important about this podcast is also to remember the dead. It's almost like a memorializing of the dead. One of the children that he is in prison for murdering is baby boy A, who shares a birthday with my own father, oh, my July goodness. the 12th. And it's, and I, you know, I always, my mother used to talk about the hand of God, you know, she used to say, well, there's the hand of God. And I'm a big believer in that. And when I got into this story, and it's a very tough story to know, but very important to know, this is contemporary history. This is, this should be known by everyone in America. This man is America's biggest serial killer that not enough people know about. But when I got into it and then discovered this child, this baby who was born on July the 12th, who was alive, who was so big that. People in the in the clinic took photographs of him, um, and 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 I looked at the date and I thought that's July twelfth, and I thought that is a message. <laughs> if ever I heard of one, that's a message from God telling me that I'm doing the right thing, that I have to tell this story. And you know, this child, and he haunts me. He honestly haunts me. His picture is online. People can look it up on the internet, but you know, only do it if you think you're up for it, because you won't forget him in a hurry. And he was thrown into this little Tupperware container. And during the trial, and we have all of this on the podcast, we do reenactments from the trial with actors. And one of the jury, one of the one of the witnesses who was there, um, Karima Cross, was asked, "Can you?" Can, she was asked to stand up. The judge said to her, "Would you stand up and show the jury what the baby did in the in the container?" And she showed, you know, she moved her body into kind of the fetal position to show them that he curled himself around to keep himself protected, to keep himself warm, and. He was there, and, he, and as I said, a number of people uh, took photographs of him, and those photographs put Kermit Gosnell in prison. And my, my husband makes a beautiful point about baby boy A. He says, you could live really long, you could live to be a big age, and you mightn't ever do anything very consequential in your life, right? You live a life, and you bring up children, you do a whole load of nice things, but nothing massively consequential. This little boy... Baby boy A. He only has the letter A as a name. Oh, my goodness. He could change the whole world. He's saved lives already. I know it because people write to me. They've written right. to me. I've told this story. I've shown the movie to people. I've got people to listen to the podcast. And they have they've decided not to have an abortion. So it's, it's very significant. And I, I would ask, as I said, your listeners to do this favor for me, to go to SerialKillerPod.com and listen, listen, no, all for free. It's all free. And then share it with other people. Say to people, look, would you listen to this? And particularly share it with young people. Because young people are listening to these 
crime podcasts. And to give you an example, there's one that NPR did called Serial, and 450 million people have listened to it. Wow. So this is a great way. I know this is incredible numbers. This is an amazing way to get this story out there. And we're just telling the truth. We're telling what happened. And we have the witnesses speaking their own words. And it's, it's very, very powerful. I'm very, very proud of it. And it's, it's interesting when you look at the podcast, when you go on your phone and you look at the start listening to the podcast, you'll see the reviews. People are writing. They're saying that it's amazing. And they're really so delighted that they found it and all of that. And then, of course, there are people who are very big pro-abortion activists who are going in trying to give us bad ratings to bring our rating down. Mm-hmm. And despite all their efforts, we were number 11 on all true crime, true crime podcasts worldwide last week. So, you know, it's a powerful, it's six episodes and it tells the whole story. And it's, it's very, very powerful. I would really ask your listeners to listen to it. And give us that uh, address one more time. Yeah, so it's SerialKillerPod.com. So Pod. SerialKillerPod dot com. That's it. And you can just put that into your phone or put that into your Google and it'll come up and then press play and just listen. Uh, and it's uh, it's so sick to watch this stuff. And I know that uh, that had to be difficult. You actually interviewed him while he was in prison, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, he's, he, you know, extraordinary. Did he appear to be contrite, broken, repentant, anything like that? Not at all. No, absolutely. Very much the opposite. I mean, I had I was under the illusion that, you know, that it would be like in the movies, that there would be a plexiglass between me and him. And instead of that, actually, what what there was, was it was like a rec room. There was like coffee tables. And he moved his chair and pushed it right into my personal space. He kept repeatedly t- touching my leg, apologizing, saying, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He's highly manipulative. He has this mellifluous voice, very soft. He's very articulate, very well built. You know, he's an African-American, very tall man. Um, and he talked to me in that prison. I was there for about three hours, like as though he'd come in from a golf course. So he all very jolly. And, you know, he was just disappointed. He didn't get into the poetry class and talking about, but he's in the band and he plays the piano. And of course, he's a very accomplished pianist. And he's telling me all this, like as though you know, he's at summer camp or some nonsense like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then, but then he did these things that threw me totally. Like, you know, he's talking about, you know, his marvelous career and all these things he had done. And he started to talk about this one time that he was in Poland and that he'd gone to Auschwitz. And he used a word to describe Auschwitz that is a word I have never, ever heard used in relation to Auschwitz. And the word was impressive. Oh, no. It was impressive. Yes. And what he particularly found impressive was the collection of children's shoes. There's a massive mound in Auschwitz, a lot of your listeners know this, of little shoes of the little children that were murdered. And he found it very impressive. And this is coming from a man who we know cut the feet off children and kept them in jars. And so when Jim Wood, when Detective Jim Wood went into that premises the first time, and he's walking around this place thinking, what kind of crazy place am I in? Bloodstains urine stains on the floor like really appalling he said the worst conditions he'd ever seen and then he comes across this room like where people have their peanut butter and jello sandwiches and right there beside that there is row upon row upon row of these baby's feet in jars that he's cut off and kept oh my goodness so then he tells me then i'm sitting there in this prison with him he's talking about how impressive the shoes were the collection of baby shoes 
um, at Auschwitz and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, but, but in, and it's interesting and it's important maybe that I mentioned Auschwitz because while I was writing the book and while I was working on this podcast, I was constantly reminded of the Holocaust. And this is a Holocaust. This is a Holocaust. We will look back and remember the, the lives lost here, 60 million children so far. And that's, an, that's a conservative estimate of the number of children who die in abortion in America, who've died in abortion since Roe was, was made legal. And, you know, there's something of the Holocaust about that. And I think also like the Holocaust, it's really difficult to get your head around a number as big as that. Stalin said, and I actually make this quote in the podcast, Stalin said, you know, um, that, you, know that you can't break somebody's heart when, with a million deaths, but you'd break their heart over one. And, and, and the truth is that's exactly what happens in this podcast, because you will break your heart over those individual stories that are told. And in the end, you'll remember that this is part of a much bigger story of all the lives that have, that have been destroyed, all the children that won't be here, all those people who, who, who would bring joy, who could, could cure cancer, who would sing in the local it's choir. So, it's you know so I mean? incredible. All yeah. that joy, all that that has been taken from the world forever, all that potential. And when people talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, predominantly the victims in this whole story are African-American. Mm-hmm. And yet Black Lives Matter have nothing to say about this. And they're losing these beautiful children, massive, massive population of African-Americans that are lost forever. Yeah, you know, why, this, is a, this is a demographic nightmare from, from the black population's point of view, and they should be up in arms over it. It certainly is, and it's so concerning that uh, to whatever degree abortion is still going on post-Roe, it is still going on. A lot of areas yes. are even trying yep. to double down and make laws right. that would even be worse than what we've seen yes. so far. So this, this battle's not over, right, Anne? No, it's not. And, and I think where we're at now, and I, I'm, I have so many lovely, gorgeous, gorgeous friends in the pro-life movement, people I will be connected to forever. We're basically family now, whether they like it or not. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I've been saying to them, you know, that bringing this, obviously overturning Roe is, is, is an incredible moment for everyone that cares about this issue. Um, it's exactly the right thing to happen, but it's, nothing is solved. <laughs> you know, it's a great thing that's happened, but nothing is solved. now. The people decide. And don't go thinking that, that is, that's, not, that's not a simple thing. People need to, I have, I'll come with a lesson from Ireland. And the people were asked to decide here. And that did not work out well mm-hmm. for life. So what needs to be done now, the very heavy work that needs to be done now, and that I believe I'm doing with this podcast, and that's why I really want your listeners to listen to it, is to get people to, to learn the truth. Just the truth. Just that's the right. Truth. Because, you know, when people hear the truth, they're flabbergasted. I mean, this has been my experience with this story. I mean, I was not pro-life. I was not, I would have been, I, you know, I would have definitely been pro-abortion or neutral at least on abortion prior to this because I just didn't know. And I had been, yeah, I'd been sucked into all the propaganda, you know. And now, I'm, now I know. And I think when you know, this is offensive to decency. And you're also working right now on a new feature film on Hunter Biden. So it's a movie, and we're going to have very big news about that very soon. So we shot the movie in Serbia ah. back in November with so Robert Davi, who I think your audience would well know who Absolutely, I'm talking about. Absolutely, yeah. 
So Robert is the director. Lawrence Fox, who maybe people wouldn't know, he ran for mayor of London. He's a British actor. He plays Hunter Biden. Joe Biden is played by the great John James, who, again, your listeners will remember John James. John James was Jeff Colby back in the day in Dynasty. Mm -hmm. And he's marvellous. He's a revelation. And the movie is deeply shocking, very, very entertaining. But, you know, again, in the end, it's telling a story that has been suppressed that people need to know. Now, of course, dealing with Hunter Biden, and I would warn your audience, clearly you need to know it's not going to be, this is not for children. This is not uh, a movie for children, right. for grown-ups, um, because you, we all know the kind of life that, that this man has led. But, um, but again, another important story, and a story that was suppressed and needs to be known because this corruption in this family is extraordinary. Anne McElhenney, thank you so much. Give us your website one more time. So you go to serialkillerpod.com. Thank you so much, Anne. You're uh, a spot on on everything you're doing, and we thank you for being with us here today. Well, God bless you and your audience. We'll be right back on Afternoons with Mike. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years' experience, EC Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. If you are nearing 65 years of age and need to compare Medicare supplement plans, here is great news. You can speak to a licensed professional independent insurance agent at Affordable One Insurance in Orlando. You'll find them to be so trustworthy and helpful. And at Affordable One, there is no cost or obligation for your call. Comparing plans can be confusing. Get the help you need at Affordable One. Call 407-965-4166. That's 407-965-4166. If you've considered the natural beauty of a wood floor, then go with a winner. Ability Wood Flooring has been a trusted source and family-owned and operated since 1950. Ability Wood Flooring is voted best of the best and are featured on A&E's Zombie House Flipping. Ability proudly works with Florida's top builders, winning many awards in the Parade of Homes. Get a free design consultation today. AbilityWoodFlooring.com It is indeed a rock and roll kind of Friday. Now we go to our third segment. With me today is Karen Whitaker. We're going to hear her story. It's extraordinary. But also kind of being my color commentator today (laughs) is Mark Goldstein. Mark is here. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. (laughs) It's always great to have you here. And why don't you go ahead and kind of fill us in on Karen, because you have not only knowledge about her giftings and the art that she does, but you know her as well personally. I met Karen uh, back in 2011 and through a company that she was with. And of course I was uh, president of the chamber and uh, fast forward uh, just to about less than a year ago, I see Karen posting on uh, one of the social media sites, this beautiful portrait of a dog. A painting. A painting of a dog. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to her and I said, Karen, you did this. I, you know, you've been holding back. I didn't know you had that. <laughs> well, folks that know me and know me well know that Ronnie and I are dog people. We don't have them now, but dogs have been very significant in, in our lives and three of them especially. So I asked Karen, 
could I commission you to, to paint these? And Mike, the work that she did, I can almost cry mm. as I'm thinking about it. And I think you have a, a picture of it, it to yeah. look at. But the, it, she captured them, uh, their personalities, and she grabbed our emotion. And though they've been gone for a while, they're still alive in our memories because we see them every day on our wall. So in talking to Karen and, and in talking with you, I said, man, this is a ministry that Central Floridians really need to know about because there's a lot of dog people that need or pet people that mm-hmm. need closure. We're not dog owners ourselves, but we have. I have two grand pups. Uh, I'd like to say it that way. I've uh, there's a dog. One daughter has Remus, and another one of my daughters have. They have Duncan, and uh, my my goodness, uh, these dogs they are very special to my kids. So, Karen Whitaker, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's really great. Now, tell us a little bit about how you, first of all, came to know the Lord. Tell us about that. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and, you know, so I went to church all my life, and I very, I always felt that he was part of me. Um, I was a child of the 60s and a little bit maybe obstinate. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody from the 60s were obstinate, right? <laughs> Nobody would have been that way. And um, I chose to marry early against my parents' wishes, and I found that that was, they were very smart, and Mm -hmm. I had made a not-so-healthy choice for myself. And um, so I, after seven years, I ended the marriage, Um, and I was very broken, very, very broken at that time. Um, and, but I knew that God didn't intend for me to be alone. And I had two very, very small children, six months and uh, two years old. And I knew that I, God didn't intend for me to be alone and I didn't want to be alone. Um, so I just opened my heart and I said, God, if there's somebody out there that you want for me, you need to make it abundantly clear, Mm -hmm. um, that you have someone for me. And while you're at it, I never want to be hungry and I never want to be homeless. And he answered those prayers. Um, My parents met this young man that was in the Navy and he became a friend of the family. And um, eventually I met him as well. And that's like a real bonus having your mom and dad (laughs) already knowing him, huh? Very much so. Yes. And, um, uh, he, when my daughter was a year old, I decided to have her baptized because I wasn't mm-hmm. allowed to do that when she was born. And, um, he lived in Kentucky and was, had gone home for his brother's wedding on Saturday and Sunday morning he was sitting in church and I said, what are you doing? You know, you left your parents' house at midnight and drove here to be at church in the morning. He said, this baby's being baptized, mm. and I need to be here to be a part of that. And it's like, okay, God, I got the message. Yeah. So six months later, we were married. And oh, that's great. Now it's been 42 years. 42 years. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's congratulations. And thank you. And, it, and he is, he is a prince. He's a very godly man and he he's just a wonderful man. He's encouraging and everything. Oh, that's um, great. To continue just a little bit, 
um, he never saw me paint. I painted in high school and then wasn't encouraged to do so afterwards. Um, so I never did. And then just a couple of years ago, I painted a couple of small paintings for mm-hmm. Christmas gifts and he saw them. And so he says, you know, my birthday was coming up and I opened this gift and there's paints and canvases and brushes and all this stuff to paint with. And, and I just teared, you know, I just cried. And he says, your paintings are so special. He says, you need to do this. Uh, So he's equipped you. The Lord's equipped me. And so has my husband. (laughs) (laughs) This whole thing of art, I'm sure that as much as you love it, you probably didn't realize that it was going to be as big a part of your life as it obviously is now, right? I did not. Yeah, I, had, I did not. I think most people are that way. They kind of fall into what they're doing. And mm-hmm. the gift, as it has been said, makes room for itself in one's life. And that's what's happened with you. Yes. Why uh, painting animals? Because that seems to be a real, especially dogs, right? Yes. Yes. What is the reason for that? Was that always that way? No. No, it wasn't. I started out, he, you know, I got all these paints and things, and I took a couple of online tutorials to brush up on techniques that I hadn't used in over 40 years. Brush up, uh, no pun intended. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. (laughs) Um, And and I had a very good friend that bred Chinooks. I don't, they're sled dogs, and one of her dogs was in the Snow Dog movie, and I, um, uh, she's, older and not able to raise dogs anymore and she really misses her dogs so i painted one of her chinooks that's it wow and um and then i you know i posted it and i had three people that said oh i want you to paint my dogs and it's like okay you know so and it just kind of took on its own life just from that um i do paint other things as well Mm -hmm. and i enjoy other things as well but the dogs just kind of took on their own you know and and when i'm painting um specifically or if i'm painting for a particular person i actually write a prayer on the canvas before i begin to paint and i pray for that person while i'm painting and um god is good he he moves my hand and and the creation that comes from that is is very emotional for the person that receives it. Now we haven't talked about the name. Speaking of emotion, <laughs> uh, explain the name of your ministry. The name of the ministry is Tales of Emotion, and that's spelled Tales T A I L S, as in dog tales and cat tales. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I named it Tales of Emotions because obviously I'm painting dogs for and cats and things like that for people, and they usually have tales. Um, and I noticed that when I reveal a painting to the client, they usually have a very emotional response um, when they see their their precious little pet that's in now available to them forever right and um and i'm all always told that you really captured their essence or their personality i really believe you do i mean i've seen your <laughs> pictures um the one that you we referenced earlier um that was just beautiful and it's different than i think what i've seen before you i don't know what style 
you're using? What is the medium of your art? Well, I use acrylic paints. Um, as far as the style of my painting, I it's technically photorealistic, but it's it's whatever I'm led to do. Some of my paintings are are more realistic than other ones. It just depends on what God's telling me that painting mm-hmm. needs to be. Now, you mentioned emotion, and obviously the name of the ministry is Tales of Emotion. Yes. Uh, and, and that is not a, a story type of tale, T-A-I-L. Uh, when you talk about pet owners, there is a deep amount of emotion that is often held, and uh, to have a memento of a pet is really important, isn't it? It is. It very much is. Our pets are um, different than our children because our pets are never judgmental and they're always mm-hmm. available to us. Um, and they're 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 just we can be whoever we need to be. We can tell them our secrets. We can we can just be who who we are really in front of our pets and regardless of who we are they come to us loving and and just gracious that we give them our attention um and that's something that you rarely get from other people (laughs) (laughs) not to say that our pets are more important than our children (laughs) no they're not they're not That's for sure i've seen a lot of painters and you've done this as well some wildlife painting yes Do, do you ever go out to like a park and see an animal or is it always off of a photo no i'm constantly taking photos myself okay and and when i paint like from any any animals or anything I paint, I have very uh, several different poses and and pictures that I put together in my head mm-hmm. and create a particular pose that I paint. How long does it take you from start to finish? It depends, you know, on the number one on the size of the painting and number two on on just how quickly the animals talk to me. Typically, it takes me about a week to mm-hmm. paint um, and most of my um, dogs and, and paintings. So how many hours would be invested? I would say probably about maybe 30 to 40. Wow. Yeah. That's a full week's worth. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And the backgrounds, that would be my final question here. The backgrounds that you use when you get these realistic looking dogs, uh, obviously those are... Uh, um, that's kind of random, isn't it? Or how do you do that? It's not. There's a couple of different things. Number one, like um, this one dog here. When I started looking at all the photos of him, um, I felt like he thought he was king. And so I gave him a purple background. Ah. Um, so, so that too is inspired from the photo. It is. It is. I have another one that I did that the owner is a wooden... Uh, a woodcraft he builds furniture and so i put the dogs on a wooden floor um to honor his craft what an awesome story and it's so nice to meet you and to see your talent thank you for coming in and bringing your lovely pictures thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it these paintings are amazing just creative the way that you look at a picture and get an idea a little bit about the character of that pet. And according to what I hear, you capture it. Thank you. That's a real gift. Karen Whitaker, my guest today, if you'd like information, 
Her website is talesofemotion.com, and that's T-A-I-L-S of emotion.com. And friends, thanks for joining us for yet another program. We'll see you next time on Afternoons with Mike. <music>